Thank you for for the ability to present. Oh, where is? Let's go. President will come back. Uh, last time when I was talking, it was February, I think, 11th or something like that. February, I was talking about reflective armed forces in Lithuania. But after a couple of weeks after that presentation, lots of changes in Ukraine, in Crimea, and in our region. And well, now I'm presenting a bit different presentation where I have to be more positive about Lithuanian armed forces, probably not critical. We'll see how it will proceed because, after all, we have to prepare for defense of maybe Russian attack. Maybe we'll see. Uh, I will broke two rules. I will broke, broke, break two rules on this presentation. One is I don't like to give us slides, but I decide maybe to show some slides before because some numbers, budget, armed forces size, maybe better to see in the slides than to listen to me, because it's visual, visualizing is better one. And the second one is more, I don't like to be, how to say, to play a politics, but the title is a little bit polit politicized. <laughs> because I would guess that even here in the United, United Kingdom and in Western countries, there are people who are saying that there is no Russian-Ukrainian war. It's Ukrainian crisis, Crimea crisis, or whatever you call it. In Lithuania, it's plain simple. It's a Russian war against Ukraine. But that's all where I use political, let's say, some questions, etc. After that, I will try to be as much as possible objective and talk about numbers, about situations, about facts. But, and that also reflects, let's say, mentality of Baltic states. Because when Western countries are using, uh, as I said, crisis management, limited war, or something like that, it's sometimes perceived in our region like a defeat of Western countries too soft position against Russia, and we more, more harder position. More troops on the ground, more American troops in Baltic states, permanent bases, etc., etc. And, well, you probably know that it's not sometimes so easy to do that, and Britain, America, Germany has maybe much wider interpretation of what is happening in Ukraine and Baltic states. Okay, so let's try to proceed. So, at first, some Geography. It will be maybe important to understand, so Baltic states, so simple question is, imagine how you have to defend. If you are, let's say, Germany, Poland, or Norway, you have to send troops to Baltic states. Only with 60 kilometers link between Lithuania and Poland is direct land link with other NATO countries. And that is between Kaliningrad district and Belarus. So in our military planners are saying, if some... If there will be some attack, it just very easily may attack this position and disconnect Lithuania and Baltic states from the Poland. And the only way is by sea or air to reach our countries. And also, Narva is important. 82% of population in that city is Russian. So if you talk about Crimean scenario in Baltic states, that's probably the most often city which is named Whereas this scenario might be, again, done. Because 82% is a lot. This Dokpilis, it's around 70%. Latvian city is around 70% of Russians living in that city. And again, it's border town. Lithuania is more lucky. Uh, in this sense, you'll see some numbers. We have really, really smaller numbers of Russian minorities. So in our case, it's a bit different. But we have more broader challenge from Kaliningrad district. As our country. So, some numbers, and we'll go. So, you see, numbers are 
a little bit astonishing, Lithuanians managed to have small minority. And that is, I would say, one of the positive legacy of our Lithuanian Communist Party, because it was a rational decision by Lithuanian communists in late 50s not to give permission for Russians to enter Lithuania or limit the numbers. That was different with Estonia and Latvia. And now we, all the countries are paying the price or reaping the benefits of their decisions made in Soviet times. Uh, you can see the population size of our countries. Lithuanian numbers are, I would say, is, uh, in some kind of flux. Also, official data is saying that, let's say, that in Lithuania we have three and a half million people. Uh, why I put this number? Because there's around 300,000 Lithuanians who are living in Norway, Ireland, Great Britain, United States, Germany at this moment. So, very big migration. Estonia, not so much. Latvia also has a lot of big migration. Lots of Latvians are living in Western European, European Union countries, especially Britain, English. So, this Russian immigration was post-World War II? Yes, post-World War II. Well, Russians in Lithuania were lucky also in this sense because the Russian Khrushchev, he was so generous. He, was, he gave away Crimea to Ukraine and he was proposing for the Lithuanian Communist Party to, to take uh, Kaliningrad district and to unite with Lithuania. Say, but the Lithuanian Communist said, well, you know, we don't want Kaliningrad. Keep it to yourself. I would say from looking from this perspective, it was a wise decision because otherwise we will have a bigger territory with very big Russian minority probably the biggest in that region. So, again. And then, so, the problem is, again, with capital. So, in Vilnius, it's uh, only 13%, but Riga, 50%. So, if you will be in Riga, probably you will hear more oftenly Russian language and Latin language, talking in the streets, in taxi drives, or public transport. Tallinn, 30%, and it's decreasing. So, I think the biggest challenge is Latvia still is Latvia. Numbers are going down. Uh, I think it was in 90s, it was around 32% of Russian minority in Latvia. So some of them went, went back to Russia. Some of them just decided to be a Latin citizens and let's say to, to take a new identity. But still a big number is. So, so when we're talking about little green man scenario and having in mind, let's say, especially Crimea case, there is some worries in Baltic states, especially in Latvia. That might happen. In Lithuania, we have different challenge. We have 11% uh, minority of Polish people. And you may say Lithuania and Poland are strategic partners, yes and no. Taking granted our difficult historical past, we have a big tension with Polish minority. Especially Lithuania and Polish, Pol Polish party is playing some I would say, unconventional political games. And it's clear that in some ways it's financed by Russians. At least 30% of all budget of this party is paid by a Russian embassy in Lithuania. So if we don't have Russian minority, so we have Polish minority, which is used by Russians. And that minority lives around capital area and around the border region with Belarus. So again, if you talk about secret, concealed movement of troops from Belarus to Vilnius or Lithuanian territory, that region where Polish minority is living, again, some headache exists. Okay, so that is number about population. And overall, we may see that it's around six and a half million people living in all three countries altogether. So, not very big ones. Now, armed forces. Uh, 
numbers are difficult to get, actually, I have to say. And I was checking military balance and all internet sites. So let's say what you can find in the newest edition of military balance is totally different from what Estonian Minister of Defense are putting in their own site. So the question is, whom I have to trust when looking for? I know that exactly Lithuanian numbers because they are plainly put in Lithuanian Minister of Defense site, let's say, and what. So again, so regular forces in Lithuania, 7,800. In Latvia, 5,000. In Estonia, oh, sorry, in Latvia, 5,000. In Estonia, 3,800. Volunteer force number one, what I have in mind, we have, we don't have conscription. Conscription was uh, ended in Lithuania in 2008, but we have this called basic training course where younger people may voluntarily come to have a tactical training exercises for three months, and after that they may go away and enter again civilian life or go to regular forces. So that number, in one year, we are training around 1,000 volunteer younger people. And that is something equal numbers of our conscription in 2005, 4, 3. So we don't have a conscription, but the same number of people are coming voluntarily to have a basic tactical training. We have active reserve, that is volunteers, real volunteers. So number is not a very big one. Uh, 4,000. We have this rifleman union, about 7. So that is paramilitary organization. Uh, half of that organization is uh, youth, underages. So, and there is now a big debate: should we train them to use a weapon or not? Let's see, because you have then we have a 15-year-old guy maybe training to use a serious military weapon, and it's a big debate. But Russia's challenge may create such kind of condition that we will start training even maybe children or school children, senior classes use weapons. So that we still ha we have some political debates in Lithuania about that. Latvia, National Guard, something like active reserve plus paramilitary organization. So we have 10,000, regular forces 5,000. And Estonia has conscription. Latvia doesn't. So that is a bit different between all three Baltic states. And they have this Volunteer Defense League, which is also kind of, in some way, paramilitary more organization, big numbers, 13,000. So overall, you can see that the plan is in Lithuania to increase regular forces in up 2020, 2020 to have around 11,000 regular forces from now on. Such numbers are planned if we will have enough funding and will to find the money. Estonia is planning to expand the military up to 1,000, up to 6,000 regular forces. And Estonia is planning to have two operational brigades of land forces. That means, let's say, they have almost double that number. And again, everything is planned up to 2020. So we will see how it will proceed. At least this year, uh, Estonia expanded by 300 people in regular forces. Uh, Lufain expanded by 200. So it's maybe small numbers, but they say that is additional money was found to recruit 200 people to give our weapons, equipment, everything. And next year will be higher numbers, but We'll see how it will proceed. But I would say the average is around 15,000 right now. All in all, people under their arms, which may be called to, in, I don't know, in one week or two weeks. We have a bigger reserve. Let's see, people who served in the army, Lithuanian army, or Lithuanian, Latin Estonian. There are some people still who have experience from Soviet times military service. So it's a bigger pool. But the question is, at least in Lithuania, we don't have enough, let's say, weapons to supply all these people 
who may come in numbers, big numbers, but you have maybe 20,000 volunteers to do something, but you don't have equipment, you don't have nothing. So what is it? Why do you need such kind of numbers if you don't know how to use it? But so, so you can imagine now what about size, population, armed forces size we're talking about, and compare with your own countries, and compare with Russia, for example, and where Russia has, I know this year statistics is around 900,000 overall soldiers in, uh, in armed forces. So it's uncomparable. So NATO is essential. Without NATO, even not on strategical level, but operational. So let's say when United States send it, even now keeps a, in each country a company of infantry, around 150 soldiers in each country. That's a lot when you look in the numbers of our armed forces. Because I would say at least what Lithuanian military is saying when the Americans are training with Lithuanians, one American company is one Lithuanian battalion in skills, equipment, etc. So they may train a lot, our soldiers, how to fight, especially tactical level decisions. So it seems maybe minor decisions by, from the United States, then you're looking from the Baltic States perspective, they're not so minor. One good company of American soldiers makes a difference, actually. And when also Hungary is sending one company, Germany, Belgium, or Denmark, and you have, Lithuania is planning next year to have around 400 foreign soldiers serving in Lithuania for exercises, for training. In Latvia, in Estonia, it will be smaller numbers, it will be, as I understand, all Americans and some, maybe Germany will send some soldiers, but it will be at least around 200 soldiers in both of these countries. So it's still quite a lot. Now, and the last slide with numbers, that is finance. Not very nice, at least first two, because Estonia is playing by the rules. One of the few countries in NATO who have, has 2% of GDP of budget. And you may see the exact number, in, exact number, numbers in euros, what kind of budget it is. Lithuania was under here, I have to say, but it's changing very rapidly and fastly because next year we'll have, we expand our defense budget by one third compared with this year. So it's a huge input of money. And the plan is to keep on going up 2020. Now again, Lithuania and Latvia, it was made a political decision signed by all political parties and agreement that up till 2020, both countries will have defense budget of equal, which will be equal to 2% of GDP. At least next year, this, how to say, decision will be fulfilled. Step by step, so let's say in 2016, Lithuanian military budget will be around 450 million euros and it will be expanded till 2020. Will be enough political will to keep that promise? I have some serious doubts. Especially if Russia will stop being, how to say, overtly aggressive in Ukraine. Because then you have lesser tensions and you have lesser debates in in, in the states, in the media, and politicians say, well, nobody cares about what is happening in Ukraine because Russia is not playing, it's not any more aggressive, let's say, for that. So thank, in some ways, thank God for Russia's open aggress aggression in eastern Ukraine because it keeps on going and it keeps the debate in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia to keep pressure on our defense budget, on our mm -hmm. militaries, to expand 
to have a better quality, to buy better, to better equipment. Well, Lightwell, so, so, and again, you may see the numbers, numbers are more or less similar. It's around 400 million euros right now the budget is planned. So you may compare with, again, with your own defense budgets and ask yourselves what you can do with such kind of money. Having in mind, let's say, the size of forces. The, the, probably the biggest question is what kind of equipment and weaponry you may buy having such money. Because, and all countries are following the rules of NATO, no more than 50% for personnel. That will be kept under consideration, and it seems that all three countries are playing by the rules here. So it means that at least Lufthansa is planning to spend about one, well, 49% for personnel and 30% for equipment and weaponry. So we'll see. So that is numbers. I will maybe leave the map because we will need to discuss. What I wanted to speak more about it, so I will talk like a military doctrine. Planning is physical, moral, and conceptual level. So I talk a little bit about physical components. So the biggest question is in, uh, now in the countries, what to do with the size of armed forces? They're too small. For example, uh, Latvia right now, they have 5,000 regular forces, but they have 10 battalions. Can we have proper managed, manned battalions with 5,000 people? My, I, I don't think so, because that means that we have a shortage of people, like in Lithuania too. Some of battalions have only 30% of feelings of battalion capacity. We need more people. The question is how to get it. Recruit them, provide a better salary, or come back to conscription. That is one big debate now in Lithuania and Latvia, especially in Lithuania. Maybe it's time again to bring back conscription. And, well, and try to, but again, political questions. Will we have exceptions? What kind of exceptions? Will students be accepted? They won't go to military. If you don't send students, then you don't have a 50% of rolling, of calling. That means that you have a waste of conscription and you have social inequality, etc. All these questions are coming back. And as you know, it's, we, have, we have presidential elections, muni municipal elections, uh, parliamentary elections, and politicians are very careful by playing that because if you lose a voice mandate of youth, you will not be elected. And conscription, that is a question of younger generation. And there is a big debate, will younger generation go to military if they will be conscripted? Because numbers are showing that every year around Ukraine, at least 1,000 younger people are keen to go to military. No more. But 1,000 is not enough. Having in mind, again, Lithuania, so because Lithuania is maybe more familiar case for me, so in Lithuania we have every year, uh, rotation is of 500 people are leaving military, 500 are entering military. Some people are retiring, finding new jobs. So let's say, if you want to increase our forces, we need much more than 1,000. Can we deliver or have to, uh, do we have to look for another way so that is conscription? Very, very big debate, tense debate. Uh, another one is volunteers and paramilitary. Again, if you want to have a more paramilitary organizations, what the role is for paramilitary organizations? 
do they must have weapons or not? Should we train children in schools to use weapons or not? Should we establish military training exercises in schools, like in Soviet times? I was born in Soviet times. I remember being in first grade during the physical exercise. I was trained to drop an artificial grenade. From seven years old, we were trained to be a soldier one day. I was lucky Lufini became independent. I haven't used that skill. And I hope I won't never use that skill. I still remember how to do that. So now, in some way, we're coming back to this question, should we bring such kind of training into the schools, especially senior classes? Not youngsters, but let's say guys, especially guys, 16, 17 years old. Estonia, uh, not doing that in schools, they're using, let's say, in school, they're teaching uh, this, how to say, civic duty, uh, teaching history, etc. And they, if you want to have a better training, you're going to this paramilitary organization. In Lithuania, we're saying that it's not enough in paramilitary organization, we should go to the schools and teach about military history, uh, encourage our morale, but also provide some skills. Latvia is the same. So I was talking with Rob, so it's a question for you. Now imagine, because of Russia's aggression, we're trying to be more prepared to fight back Russia. We're increasing our training and Morale is especially expansion of encouraging of morale by teaching younger generation how to fight wars and even training to use military weapons. It is a challenge and women became more militaristic nations. And that is, by definition, Russia will use that for its propaganda in informational wars. And that will sh they will be showing it for British, American people and in TV shows and saying, look, this fascist, militaristic Baltic states are preparing, and they're not democratic states anymore. How British people will perceive Baltic states? Are we still members of the democratic country's family or not? Are you still willing to help us or not? Because that is a big debate, philosophical debate, but national security versus democracy. Where to find this fine line? And in Lithuania, in some cases, I would say we, there are some proposals which are not so much democratic. And I hope that when they won't be, become a policy. Because then Russia will really have lots of material for its propaganda, and for domestic and for foreign. But that is a challenge. Another one is big debate about special forces. There is, let's say, because we're small, we don't have a big army, maybe let's invest in special forces. All three Baltic states, they have their own special forces. On Lithuania has special forces as uh, independent military service. It's a forced military service. I think it's only Poland has the same, and that's only two countries in the world who have, let's say, alongside land, air, and navy, and special forces as separate service. Not some kind of operation, but all separated and autonomous. And there's lots of legends about Lithuania and Polish, uh, sorry, Latin and Estonian special forces working with British and Americans in Afghanistan, how we are brave, how we are good ones, etc., etc. I don't know, maybe you may tell more, because when you're sitting in Lithuania, you're kind of keen to like this kind of stories, that you have a really good soldiers. Are they good ones? I don't know. It's uh, probably British and Americans may say more objectively about that. But the uh, solution is simple, it's the thing. Just expand our special forces. If they are so good, let's have more good soldiers. 
Because even if you look in the Crimean scenario, it's not conventional forces fighting. It's more paramilitary special forces fighting. So you need more special forces. Buy more better equipment, better training, and you may have a small armed forces, but if they will be more special forces style, that means, let's say, smaller numbers, big in quality. Is it possible to deliver that? I don't know. And I, what I'm looking and reading, let's say, following what is happening in Western countries, I don't see that is the right decision if it will be made. Special forces are special forces because they are small. You cannot have uh, special forces on massive scale, at least for our countries. And that costs a lot of money. Uh, physical component also, what is changing? Uh, there was changes in laws in Lithuania and Estonia. We, how to say, we changed our laws accordingly to Ukrainian situation that if we will have a green, little, little green man situation, that you, we could use armed forces in two or three hours. So that means in Lufania, for example, we, if we have information that it might be something like in Crimea, our president may sign a, an, a document which will allow military forces to take under control a particular region and do police work, border control work, and the fighting if it's necessary. Kind of military rule or military law in that particular area. Uh, Estonians are more clarified, let's say, the infrastructure and political structure. Who will be in charge if everything happens? So let's say it's uh, increasing powers of prime minister very much, actually. Uh, also, in Lithuania, we, have, we decide to have a rapid, rapid reaction forces, uh, two battle groups, each uh, 800 people, which may be react from 2 to 24 hours duration in any place in Lithuania. So, Special Forces unit must be in any place in Lithuania in two hours' time if something happens. Other designated units in 20 hour, 24 hours at latest. And it's already on the move from 1st of November. But that is a sad story because uh, what does it mean, at least in Lithuania, we manage only to have fully manned two battle groups. That's how much we have equipment, weaponry, because we don't have, we don't have the third battle group. We don't have enough people and we don't have enough weaponry to have the third battle group, which could react in 24 hours. It's so in some ways we put everything what we have and we are preparing to, to use this force and we have all laws accordingly, but it's, on the other hand, that's all what we have at this moment. Well, we, we, have, we have special forces, one unit serving in Afghanistan, one unit is uh, preparing for serving in Afghanistan, so we may add up maybe another 100 soldiers. That's all. So that is the situation in Lithuania, and Lithuania, is the biggest, Lithuania has the biggest regular forces in from all three Baltic states, so you can ask yourself, what is the Latvian and Estonian situation? L Latvians them, are the worst, because they don't have enough people and they don't have enough equipment. Estonians maybe don't have enough people, but they have kind of good equipment and weaponry, because they, they have a lot of money and they're spending kind of wisely and buying a new stuff, like javelin stingers. We have two, but uh, for example, Estonians they have a bigger stockpile of javelins, for example, than Lithuanians. So, so, so that is also a challenge in, in Lithuania. And 
on a silver lining for the last year we have i don't know i i just stopped counting but around 10 big training exercises international ones americans british germans denmark uh, germany i think now we have a air policing planes from portugal canada belgium poland so NATO is sending a lot of people for at least for training and for the next year or so we'll have a lot of training actually. So it's in this case uh, at least our skills of soldiers are improved. Improved very much. Right now in Lithuania and all three Baltic states for example soldiers are training with the American company and that company is uh, having their own striker. So let's say Lithuanian soldiers can touch real striker and do a tactical exercises and training with Americans and with strikers. And it's paid by American government. That's important, actually, when you start calculating all the costs. And yesterday, Americans uh, they confirmed that Americans will remain on rotational basis in Baltic states at least for the next year, all year. Maybe in, even 2016. It will depend probably how everything will be happening in Ukraine. Uh, another big task for Baltic states is because we are small, we don't have enough people, we will need the help, we will be attacked, so some, our allies will come in, in many different ways. We have, must have an infrastructure for host nation support facilities. Railway lines, port facilities, airports, bases, barracks, ammunition, arsenal, everything. So in a couple of next years, there will be just big constructions and buildings in all three Baltic states. Is they happening right now, even? Actually, so for example, Lithuania. So you can imagine we have military bases all over the place, but our capital doesn't have almost non-soldiers. Military academy. And during all these years, we didn't have enough money or political will to build up somewhere here a military base because Belarus it's not question mark what is its role and its con connection with Russia so it was decided from next year to build a big military base not far away from the capital and that will be the first Lithuanian original Lithuanian military base because all other ones are from Soviet times even the buildings are still built by Soviets and we just make some cosmetic reconstruction, let's put, let's put it this way. So, so for the next year, couple of years, we will be spending a lot of money for host nation supports. So it's not maybe fancy dancy weaponry, but more, let's say, more buildings, more better roads, more railway lines, etc., etc., etc. Equipment, anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, all three countries are buying or will buy very soon uh, armored personal carriers. Estonians already buying. Uh, Latvians have an agreement with British company or with British something corporation. Lufania is have to make a decision up next uh, April. And for example, Lufania, that is a big question, big debate, because we are planning to spend in Lufania money. 1 billion liters, that is around three, 350 million euros. Actually, that is to this year's annual budget of defense. We want to spend for the vehicles. So there's lots of money, 
lots of decisions, lots of questions about possible corruption. Uh, do we need at all? That is conceptual question. What we will do with armored personal carriers? What is the necessity to have such kind of equipment? Maybe let's buy more javelins and stingers. Maybe invest into special forces. Or maybe buy some helicopters for our special forces again. Do we need this kind of carriers? That is conceptual questions, actually. And the problem is that the <coughs> Minister of Defense and Armed Forces sometimes are not capable to answer why do we need such kind of equipment? What is utility? They start discussing about tracks and wheels, about caliber, and some old technical stuff, but no conceptual questions. Let's say, if we will have a conscription, conscripts, how we will connect and unite conscripts with new, with, with, with new equipment? Can we train conscript soldiers to use this new personal carriers? Do we ask such questions at all? Do we see everything in holistic terms? Or just we're buying different platforms but not seeing, let's say, how they all unite? That is question. Estonians are the best ones in this because they spend a lot of money trying to understand how to say, and this conceptual level, Latvian Estonians, Lithuanians and Latvians are worse than that. We still have problems with conceptualizing some issues. Okay, maybe going to more moral component, so political will. At least for now there is political will in all three Baltic states. There were signed agreements, as I said, to increase budgeting. And that is happening in real terms. In Lithuania we increased, in, even this year, by 40 million euros from extra, from extra budget just to buy new equipment, even this year. Next year will be more expensive. Latvia also, Estonians like, just keep on going to keeping this 2% level. Uh, so we have this political will. Uh, but at least in Lithuanian case, I think in a couple of years it will, be dis it will disappear. Unless our president, which is a very strong lady, may set some angry words towards parliament and government and forced to keep increasing. Because already we have discussions in Lithuania. So who will pay for this studies and education? Who will pay for social services? Who will pay for health security if we're spending for the defense? Is it Russia so really big threat for us? That is really dangerous question. Also the question of the society. So that is very important about informational wars. Very simple question, ask in all three Baltic states, in the media. If Russia will attack us, how fast NATO will send its forces to our help? One day, two days, three weeks? It might be a technical question, but also it's a very political question. If you say that NATO will send forces in three days, or maybe a week, so the answer goes next month. So what's the point to be NATO? Because in three days we all are occupied, or even all dead. So maybe it's not so good to be in NATO. That is Russian informational war in Baltic states. Constant message in media outlets. And you have to fight back. And you have to bring conviction from NATO headquarters, etc. We have contingency planning, we're doing training, everything is prepared, everything is arranged, don't be afraid. If, 
if worst comes to worst, Germany, Poland, and Norway, probably the first ones, will come. Later on, other countries will follow. But who knows? So the question of uh, morale of society is a big question. And the question is, again, if there will be occupation or some parts will be occupied, what about the resistance? Should we train our societies to be capable to make a resistance? Passive resistance and active resistance. Should we train, let's say, survival skills for, gener for people in Lithuania? For example, my generation. I didn't serve in the military, and I'm too old to serve in the military. So younger generation may, maybe will go to military via conscription. The older generation have skills from Soviet times. What about my generation? How we will get skills to fight? Should, we, should government spend some money for training civilians who are not in, not in volunteer forces, not in paramilitary forces, but they say some survival skills training? Should we do that or not? If yes, who will pay for that? How much money you need? Again, is it worth it? Is it not too militaristic? The same questions are asked in other two Baltic states. Estonians are again more... I say Estonians very consistently, because they always were concentrated on territorial defense, they were more focused on this civilian education of, of military skills. Latvia and Estonia didn't spend a lot of money doing that. And now we have a gap. And we have a professional armed forces. Uh, we have kind of small volunteer forces. The rest of society doesn't know how to survive, let's say, in a forest or in a city without electricity, without credit card. Maybe you, we all, all of us must have some cash at home, just in case if everything went down. So then again, so that is a question. And that goes to another big question about conceptual level. How the what is the best way to defend? So in uh, Estonia is having territorial defense, perception and understanding. Latvia and Lithuania wa was more on expeditionary forces, and they changed their military accordingly in 2005, 2006. Now what we're debating, that the best probable way will be fight back, Russian attack it will happen in the cities, urban warfare training. But then you have a discussion bigger. So uh, if we will fight back in our cities, what about the rest of Lithuania or Latvia, Estonia? What cities? You can defend everyone. So some of these probably areas will be left and permitted to be occupied. That is a political question, because politicians, they must now explain for people, maybe, that is my native town, Tauragea. That is 30 kilometers from Kaliningrad. So, looking into history, my town always was occupied in the first hours of First World War, <laughs> Second World War, it's uh, Napoleonic Wars when they were entering. So basically, if Russia will decide to attack, this town is gone, it's occupied. So you have to tell people living in that town that, you know, you must prepare to live under the Russian occupation, maybe for one day, maybe for two days, while NATO will come, while we fight back. How to live? How to behave? To be more active resistance or passive resistance? And is it politically correct, let's say, to say that you will be left alone? Because we have to concentrate on strategic areas, our forces, because they are small ones. And to fight in the cities is better because 
uh, to fight in cities is uh, you are winning time because it's not easy so easily to defeat enemy in the urban area. And maybe if you need a one day or two, let's say that is how you're buying time. So, and because uh, we have a history of active resistance against Soviet regime in early, late 40s, early 50s, we have another tradition. We call this forest tradition. There's active resistance everywhere. Ambushes, IEDs, whatever you want. And you have to train these skills population. Population must know how to fight active resistance. Insurgency. That's put in a now more familiar vocabulary. So let's say we have two different interpretations conceptually. City versus forest, as we call it. Which way is best? What, what kind of equipment to buy? Uh, also, that is only our region, but we are NATO. NATO has a global perspective. If you want to be a good member of NATO, you must have a forces which be, could be capable sent to, I don't know, Syria, Libya, Mali, Afghanistan, Iraq, or wherever else. So how you find the balance between expeditionary capabilities and more territorial-based capabilities? What units will be sent away from Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, who will remain inside? What is the balance? 90% to 10? 50-50? Expeditionary level of, and that is a problem, conceptual problem in political political level in Lithuania. Uh, politicians and some key players are tending to ignore this global perspective of NATO. It seems that NATO is now concerned with Russia and Ukraine, and they are keen to forget and ignore, let's say, that NATO has also some some other issues on agenda. And when they are ignoring that, let's say, they are not investing time and money and discussions into preparing some capabilities for global participation of NATO activities. And they, that may have some challenges, because all countries are planning to send around only 100 soldiers to any expedition outside their own countries. That's all. It's a small number. Actually, one company, you may say. So that is our input into global NATO agenda. And we would like that NATO will send everything into our countries, not vice versa. Uh, and also, there is another conceptual challenges. I was talking in a fabric. So, let's say in Lithuania, we don't have this, a very good tradition of theoretical conceptual reflection. Our military force and I would say civilians are not very good at, let's say, studying, reading about. Uh, military theories, military practice, and discuss openly, like in Britain, like, like, we don't have such kind of seminars. It's difficult to have. And Latvia doesn't have. Estonians, they are a good ones. They have for the last seven years a think tank, which is working only on defense policy questions. Latvia in Lithuania doesn't have any of such. So we don't have a tradition of talking. So let's say when I came back from Oxford, so... We managed to start tradition in Ministry of Defense to have a Chatham House rules-based discussions between officers, politicians, experts, and media. So next week we'll have the third one. And it's fruitful because for the first time you see each other in one place. And you're training and you're teaching special military to be more transparent. Because what happened after the Ukrainian crisis? Lithuanian people became very interested in military issues. So, for example, if military decide to buy 
armored personal carriers, they thought that it would be just inside the military, the question solved. Now, society started asking questions. Why? Why so expensive? What kind of company? And military was caught on guard. Oh my god, why are you asking these questions? It's operational military stuff. No, 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 people said. That is taxpayers' money. We would like to get some answers. And we think that uh, the best way to fight back Russians is another way. So let's say we have a lot of now experts in military, former Soviet time officers and people <coughs> by training in Soviet times. So some, let's say, people who were living in the UK and United States during Soviet times, they have now, they'll have a lot of expertise in saying, no, 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 the best way is to fight this way. So let's say we have this now kind of discussion about military issues open, transparent, but we have such many advice, so many advices, and so radical advice that sometimes it's difficult to sort it out what is best for us. But at least military is forced to be, how to say, more open, transparent, and military is forced, and they now understand that it's, it's different ages now. Strategic level and even operational level questions will be discussed openly in society. And military will be asked questions. And military will be asked to provide answers. You cannot say that it's top secret and I can say no. If you bring it back on scription, if you're buying expensive equipment, you have to explain to society. And society will demand. Media is furious when they, there are no answers. And we're learning quite, quite fast. For example, very good example is Russia is challenging us in the airspace. Yes, you already heard about this air policing that is increasing in numbers every day. Almost Russia is checking our borders. So it happened that a couple of weeks ago, uh, we find out that it seems that Russian planes entered Lithuanian airspace, but we found out that from Canadian media outlets, because Canadians are now located, deployed in Lithuania. And we started asking, asking our military, why we know about it from Canadians, but we don't know from our own Ministry of Defense. And that was some small scandal, and now it's a very wise decision. Every Monday, Ministry of Defense publishes a summary of the weekly events and challenges of Russia in airspace. So every Monday you may check how many times Russians were around our Lithuanian, Latin, and Estonian borders, how many times air, air air policing was activated and planes were sent into the air to check Russian planes. That is transparent. That, didn't, that wasn't two weeks ago. Our commander of chief has his own Facebook site, which is a good one, actually. And there is a lot of good information. But again, it was created only in September. And if not Ukrainian events, I would say that it wouldn't happen. So, Overall, oh, and the last one, the big debate, and I have some questions about it. Maybe you answer for me. The biggest trend and sexy topic now in all Baltic states is hybrid warfare. How to fight the hybrid warfare? What is it? And etc. And I think it's too much fetishism in this world is put in. And NATO is using that, but also, I think it's it's became buzzword, which didn't explain nothing, but everybody's using. Now, everybody knows hybrid warfare, and everybody is kind of experts in hybrid warfare, because everybody knows little green man in, in Crimea. And they imagine that, it, that, that will, if something will happen, it will be like in Crimea, and that is hybrid warfare. And I think it's too reduced perspective to narrow perspective, and it creates its own problems. When people are starting interpreting the fighting and warfare, military policy, 
under such light and context. But I will stop here. So it was more factual, but you see that overall, in the last eight, nine months, there is so many changes in all three Baltic states, which you cannot see for the last, probably 10 years ago when we were entering NATO, there was big movements of soldiers, money, etc. Now, after 10 years, we just having this, and it will be a crucial year for all three Baltic states. It's changing, radically changing. Perception, mentality, role of armed forces, and I think some, some lasting decisions will be made, are already made, because of what is happening in Ukraine. We are existentially afraid of Russia, simply put. We are afraid that they will come, because it won't be the first time. And we know from our history how it looked like when they were here. 